You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Scattered across the globe and throughout the ancient past, legends of great civilizations since vanished have persisted. Accounted for as myth and fable, these stories, ubiquitous across cultures, have often been pushed to the side, with very few modern academics willing to discuss such notions, ideas such as Atlantis or the lost continent of Mu. There are indeed places that still remain hidden across our world. Places that hold secrets left to be uncovered, many of which are likely deep within our oceans. Seemingly endless chasms beneath the waves yet to be explored. However, there are clues left closer to the surface for us to find. And one such place was discovered in 1986 off the western coast of Japan. A megalithic structure in which its origins are unknown but, if constructed by man, would have been built as far back as 10,000 years or more, making it the most ancient massive structure on Earth. Possibly built by those thought only to be simple hunter-gatherers, this find, since dubbed the Yanaguni Monument, is believed by many to be a remaining piece of an advanced civilization lost to the sea and a possible connection to a lost continent. Join us on Into the Portal as we discuss the Atlantis of Japan. Welcome back into the portal. I'm Amparay. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we are back with a brand new episode. Yes, we are. Um, um, we're feels going, like it's been a while. I know. It feels like it has been a while. We've been focusing on some Patreon episodes and trying to get those out for the end of the month. And mm-hmm. this is one that we kind of just stumbled across. Uh, we're heading underwater today. Yeah. It's been a fun trip this last like couple of weeks. Hey, we've been watching all sorts of dive documentaries yep. and and just kind of going into that sort of realm. It's a weird one. It is weird, and it's uh, I can't believe that uh, I had never heard of this before yeah. until recently. Until we started digging into it, and it's uh, we think you guys are gonna like it. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Before we dive right into that, <laughs> pun intended. Always puns. Yes. Uh, we have a couple of patrons that we would like to welcome. Yes. Yes. Into the fold here, we've got member Shay. Uh, we've got Kevin from You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Yeah. And of course, our new producer, 
join you. That's right. So thank, thank you, you guys. guys so, 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 so much. Um, and uh, Shay and Kevin are the first couple that have joined uh, our brand new Patreon tier, the Cryptid Seeker tier. Totally. So yeah, it was, it was awesome to see some uh, some new people right away on mm-hmm. there. So you guys should definitely go check it out. It's got some really great perks. And uh, yeah, just stoked to have you guys. So thank you so much. Definitely. Well, let's get into it. Let's do it. So today, like we already alluded to, we are talking about an incredible mysterious site of unknown origins that lies just off an island in the Japanese archipelago. Oh, I totally said that wrong. <laughs> archipelago? No, I'm totally saying that wrong Ar- again. Ar- uh, it's, oh. a tough, it's a tough one to pronounce. Oh, whatever. Let's just move on. <laughs> archipelago? Arch- archi- oh, oh yeah. no, oh, no, dear. no. Oh, dear. We're just digging it is a hole the, It is the southernmost island uh, in, in, the, in the Japanese island chain. Most southwest. Right. Yes. That's right. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's basically... The edge of their world, if you think about it. Essentially. And very little history is known. Yes, exactly. It was actually, those islands, um, I kind of caught this at the end of one of the docs we were watching, those islands were all controlled by mainland China at one point in an ancient past. Okay. Um, Since then has become Japanese territory. And we're talking about the waters just off of Yonagunijima. Um, And these are ruins that have been referred to as none other than the Japanese Atlantis. So an incredible ancient civilization could have once constructed this, perhaps. We're going to get into it because there's a huge debate surrounding this particular story and Mm -hmm. the site as far as its archaeological significance. So first discovered very recently in the 1980s, it was 86. uh, A local diver was just kind of exploring the area, trying to find some some really great places to view hammerhead sharks in particular. Yeah. And he was trying to find a way to bring, encourage more tourism, right? And, and to, to expand on their existing industry. So essentially he stumbled across something that kind of comes at you full frontal when you see it. And we watched a few different documentaries that um, had dive shots of when you basically come across this thing. And it's like a huge monolithic structure that's very impressive. It's and striking. It almost resembles uh, more so the Mesoamerican style of pyramid construction and just a geometric construction. Yeah. We've had people say it reminded them of Machu Picchu um, mm-hmm. in, in, in terms of terraces yeah. and things like that. It reminded them of Chichen Itza exactly. um, at certain angles and things like exactly. that. Exactly. And it's all carved. From sandstone or cleaved, I should say, because some people will debate whether this is of natural origins or not. And we're going to get into all of that today. Yeah. But it's, it's incredible. It's, it's a huge area. It's about four, 40,000 square meters in total area. Mm-hmm. And there is a peak. The largest of the largest structure rises to about 86 feet or 25 meters if you're Canadian. Although some people will say 26. So there's a little bit of discrepancy there. Roughly. It's kind of a rough estimate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. A very important player in this story is a man by the name of Dr. Masaki Kimura. He is a professor in the Department of Physics and Earth Sciences in um, Okinawa, so the University of Okinawa. And essentially, he is the preeminent scholar on all of this. He's carried out the most extensive underwater mapping of this monument in particular. Mm -hmm. In one of the documentaries, the Money Hall Dive documentary we watched, he actually had a full like a, a replica, like a model. Yeah, scale replica of the entire space. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it that way, it's pretty, pretty um, convincing. 
Yeah, pretty impressive. And according to Kimura, this is a quote here, the Yonaguni's numerous right angles, strategically placed holes, and aesthetic triangles are signs of human alteration. He also claims that carvings exist on the monuments resembling Kaida script. Okay. He believes that a pyramid, castles, roads, monuments, and a stadium can be identified within the structure, which for him is evidence that the monument is what remains of the lost continent of Mu, the Japanese equivalent to Atlantis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's pretty cool. We're going to get more into Mu in the second half of the episode. Yeah. Because, of course, that fabled civilization, like we've come across quite a few, right, in, during our studies. Yeah. I mean, almost every culture has their version of Atlantis. And, um, you know, it, it's one of those things that, like, we find that across all cultures, right? There's similarities in stories, similarities in myths and legends and stuff. And the people who are leaning the opposite direction of believing any of this stuff will say, well, the commonalities across cultures is, is kind of proof that it is just myth. But for us, when we see this, it's like, okay, now in 1986, we found something that's hotly debated whether or not it's man-made or not. And this is a legend that originates from these, this island chain. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty... Not to mention that it's currently submerged underwater, it is indeed. which again lends itself to all sorts of wild speculation of as to when it ended up down there and why and mm-hmm. what was it originally used for by who, right? So many questions. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, this Dr. Kimura, he's very convinced that there is human alteration as he phrases it. It could have been like, cause like we said before, it is sandstone. Sandstone does cleave at 90 degree angles quite naturally. So it could have been something that was just already impressive as a natural structure and then it was modified again by humans um, as they came across it and he actually has found evidence of uh, what he calls tool marks cleave marks as well as intricate arrangements of stones and carvings including animals and symbols etched into the stone although we weren't actually able to really find any images of that no, like he says tried to. he says he has them in his collection. He did show one in a documentary that appeared to have like a very rounded hole and mm-hmm. then it did have like either a carved in plus sign or a cross if you want to interpret it that way. It was or it just was, a straight mark to just like just any sort of a mark to be like okay, that's the next cutting point or something. Like just yeah. like it's just a human mark. Yeah, exactly. From a tool, clearly. Exactly. And even Monty Hall he said like that thing's been underwater for for like thousands of a years and he said he's never seen something like that naturally form so very much in support of the idea that there was human modification alteration going right. on mm-hmm. and it is okay so let's get into some of the specifics of the actual site because when when you swim over top of it or rather when the current drags you over top of it because this is a really 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 tough site to dive in which is one of the reasons it took so long to discover 1986 because people mm-hmm. were typically weren't diving in this area but it's really striking when you piece out all the features that really seem architectural. So we've got two closely spaced pillars that rise to within 2.4 meters of the surface. Uh, and they look, they're like basically um, they're, parallel. They are perfectly parallel. And uh, Professor Kimura and a few other scholars believe that they were placed there. Others believe that there was a, a different type of material in between them that washed away over time. Exactly, just eroded um, away, yeah. Of course, we don't see that necessarily throughout the rest of the monument. 
So that's that's kind of it's, it's reaching a, for a natural cause in yeah, a way. Yeah, it's an anomaly to a certain extent. Right, an anomaly within an within an anomaly, which mm-hmm. is kind of anyway tough to break down. <laughs> but um, there's five meter wide ledges uh, that encircles the base of the formation on three sides. So it's almost like a road that surrounds mm, like surrounds the monument. Yeah, and uh, I'm just going to refer to it as the monument because the Yanaguni monument is just such a cool way to mm-hmm. to refer to it, right? Um, there's a stone column about seven meters or 23 feet tall, a straight wall, 10 meters or 33 feet long. And there's various examples of this, but these are just sort of the main ones. There's an isolated boulder resting on a low platform, uh, a low star shaped platform or like a pentagram almost type shape, Hmm. uh, a triangle depression with two large holes at its edge, a perfect L shaped rock. And then this is uh, one of the main ones, the Sphinx, mm-hmm. <laughs> or uh, that's how it's sort of been dubbed because Professor Kimura and a few people who have dived the site, there's essentially like a godlike face, either partially carved or partially deteriorated yeah, in, in, a, in, a, in a space of the monument that's a little bit separate from the, the plaza, as yeah. you might call it, it's or almost the town like, square. Yeah, exactly. And he, Kimura kind of referred to it as basically a guardian god that would have maybe served a similar purpose that the Sphinx served, watching over the pyramids in Giza. Exactly. So, And there's a couple more here, I just want oh, to say, yeah. the, to actually get into the monument... Mm-hmm. At the beginning, like you can go over top of it, but there's also just, there's an actual entrance point and it looks very specific. It's symmetrical on both sides. It's the perfect size for humans to go through. And it's basically <clears throat> right at the point where you would, if it was a man-made monument, have an entrance way. It's a mm-hmm. tunnel that goes right out into the, essentially the central plaza. And it just seems very convenient. Very much so. Very much a, a planned thing, seemingly. And that's what all these divers say. They're looking at it and they're being like, they're blown away. They come back mm-hmm. up and they're like, I've never seen anything like this in my entire life. And sandstone's everywhere. It is. And and they even, yeah, they made the point of saying like when they were looking in the surrounding area that they couldn't see anything remotely similar, even though we will have alternative arguments put forth by other proponents of other theories in just a moment. But, um, oh my gosh, there was one thing I wanted to touch on though before we, mm-hmm. before we moved on. Oh, it was, um, oh, I can't remember <laughs> now. Whatever. We'll, we'll remember. We'll come back to it. Now. It's all good. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into <clears throat> some of the things because, <laughs> okay, so I love this. The Yanaguni Monument in particular, because this is the biggest formation, like we said, there are like kind of, it's almost like a collection. And then we also had references to other similar types, like you said already, um, other similar types of sites are in the area, but yeah. just not as impressive per se. The Yanaguni Monument has been um, referred to as the world's oldest building because of, of, of course, its sheer longevity, seemingly. Um, Some people have dated it back to about 8,000 BC. Others claim that it could have been around as early as uh, 10,000 BC. Crazy. And yeah, like the world's oldest building, it basically forms, it takes the form of what's been referred to as a stone ziggurat which was actually um, an ancient Mesopotamian structure that took the form of like a a rectangular step tower that would often be mounted with a temple. Right. Yeah. So ziggurats are first sort of known to come around in the third millennia BC, but that's not to say that the other like, you know, earlier versions or forms could have been around. And like you said before, Andrew, like the Japanese, like they're they have some of the oldest examples of pottery in the world too. They do. So yeah. very, very ancient peoples. And not to say that 
like, you know, it's, it's just the classic narrative where it's like, oh, just because we don't know doesn't mean it wasn't happening. You know what I mean? And it's the, all sorts of amazing totally. achievements could have been washed away by the sands of time, essentially. Absolutely. It's and, the myth uh, of progress, right? That, that we That yeah. we now today are significantly more advanced or smarter and everything else than ancient peoples because we're typing on a computer right now and recording a podcast. Exactly. More we, technology. We're more advanced. We know less about the we world. Know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know what I was going to say, though, earlier. I was just like when you were talking about um, the... Yeah, the, the the connections to what appears to be Mesoamerican type archaeological features, it really makes me think of Steve Elkins and uh, the Lost City of the Monkey God yes. and all those LIDAR images that they were looking at. Because when we see the Monogumi, or, or the Yonaguni, I should say, it looks very similar to that it in a lot of does. regards. Absolutely. With mm-hmm. the plazas, with the step terraces to get up to the plazas. Exactly. You know. Um, and, the, and the, yeah, the, the um, oh my gosh, the geometrics of it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, <clears throat> so right now this monument sits underwater. Of course, when it was quote unquote constructed or altered or modified or used by humans to a certain degree, it would have been above water, right? Yeah. So yeah, very interesting. Obviously, this is very ancient. It would have been submerged after the last ice age. So probably about 8,000 to 10,000 years ago, that type of thing. Um, yeah, I, I thought this was interesting though. I'm going to bring up another character. Okay. That's a key player because we've been talking about Dr. Kimura a lot. And there's another guy that was featured quite prominently in the discussions and in the documentaries. And his name was Robert Shosh. And he works for the University of Boston. Mm -hmm. And he kind of has his own ideas of what the significance is of the Onaguni. He kind of is on the fence about... A lot of things. He comes from the standpoint that it is a naturally occurring structure, though. That's the main difference between him and Dr. Kimura. Kimura kind of comes at it from, he's softened over the years, but he was essentially in the beginning a hardliner for the idea that humans definitely modified and constructed to a certain degree this yeah. site. Yeah. Yeah. So just to give a tiny oh. bit of, um, just a tiny background on uh, Shosh, he is definitely not a hardcore skeptic. So that like that's no, what I really yeah. like about this guy, mm-hmm. um, geologist from the University of Boston. But he's actually like uh, done work on the pyramids and the Sphinx, and come up with numbers that are like pre- predating the existing ones. So that the Sphinx was actually a couple thousand years older than what people think it is, and very very okay. open to. He's not a staunch conservative. He's open. He's mm-hmm. he's open to these things. He had some really interesting things to say though, and I'm just going to quote him here. Uh, this was from a paper he wrote back in 1999. And he says here, the Yonaguni monument, as I refer to the structure, superficially has the appearance of a platform-like or partial step-like pyramid structure. It has been compared to various pyramidal and temple structures in the Americas, such as the ancient Temple of the Sun near Truillo in northern Peru. Says here, the Yonaguni monument is over 50 meters long in an east-west direction and over 20 meters wide in a north-south direction. The top of the structure lies about five meters below sea level, whereas the base is approximately 25 meters below sea level. It is asymmetrical with what appears to be titanic stone steps exposed to the southern face. These steps range from less than half a meter to several meters in height. So he's kind of seeing that there are some discrepancies, right? It's not exactly uniform. All right, he goes on to say, when viewing photographs of the Yonaguni Monument, many people have the immediate impression, due to the regularity of the stone faces of the steps and the sharp angles made by the rock, that this is an artificial structure. 
Dr. Masaki uh, Kimura, the professor of Department of Physics and Earth Scientists at the University of Ryukyu in Okinawa, has carried out an extensive underwater mapping project of the monument. During my trips to Japan, I've had the opportunity to visit with Dr. Kimura several times, both on site in Yonaguni and in his office in Okinawa. Based on his research, Dr. Kimura has espoused the view that the Yonaguni monument is, on the whole, an artificial structure. If this is the case, then the Yonaguni monument appears to bear testimony to a previously unknown, yet very early and highly sophisticated civilization. End quote. Yeah, that's... um... (laughs) He has more to say, but I'm just going to end it there for now. And he's he, there's skepticism in that quote, obviously, of course, because he's he's lean yeah. and leaning natural. Um, but I feel like that is also it's it's a big part of it is just this. Even for those who are are not staunch skeptics, the the um, the hesitancy to kind of like be okay, pre neolithic or like neolithic peoples were maybe capable of a heck of a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, he does make the point too in the documentaries we watch that. He is of the mind that this is a naturally occurring because he sees similar things at different points along the coastline in the same island chains in Japan. But he says that this would have been very impressive if you had seen this as a human, even now, right? He makes the point. He's like, well, fascinates us now. Why the heck wouldn't have fascinated us earlier? And if it's above sea level, then there's no way that humans wouldn't have been flocking to this. Imagine their thought, you know, like it's like it's 10,000 BC and you're an ancient human and you're, you know, you're an ancient uh, Yamon, uh, like the islanders of the early islanders of Japan started in around 14,000 BC. And you see this and you think to yourself, what ancient peoples built this? Imagine thinking yeah. about your ancient past and it's 10,000 BC. Oh, you know totally. What I mean? Or if it was the work of the gods or something. Well, that's of or... course what they would have thought was such a massive mm-hmm. structure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure I'm quite going that way. I'm not quite sure I'm believing that it's 100% natural. I, yeah, okay, well, we'll, we'll get we'll into get our conclusions we'll at that. the end there. <laughs> but again, right, yeah, so this is just ongoing, this debate as to what extent humans modified, what extent humans would have made use of this, and to what extent it's naturally occurring. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. right? But again, right, to add to Kimura's perspective, he is the one that's done the most extensive mapping and surveying of this entire site. And he does point out all these features that are supposedly or could have supposedly been man-made, such as two round holes about two feet wide and a straight row of smaller holes that appear to have been an attempt to split off a section of rock by means of wedges, such as in ancient quarries. That's exactly what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And he also points out there's a number of marks, such as, like we already said, right, the plus sign or a cross, and a V-shape, apparently. We didn't actually see that in the documentary, but he has apparently a, a similar uh, marking. And this, again, appears to be made by these wedge-like tools called kusabi. And all these... Yeah, we did see evidence on a stone that was shown to Monty Hall in his documentary. Right. That has this, like like I said before, the large circular hole and then also has that plus mark that is evidently man-made. And even like Monty Hall offers his opinion that he's never seen anything like that before. So that to me kind of, you know, I think that's that's definitely some sort of evidence. And the very fact that these are around, like these few far in between evidences if you want to call them that yeah um it's very telling because like you already mentioned this is a high traffic zone there's a lot of current 
and it's conflicting currents. There's two. Yeah. And so when you think about it, like what could have been washed away in the 8,000 years it's been underwater, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I man. mean, it's a, and it is intense. Like we will, uh, we'll post the link for the documentary for the Monty Hall's dive mysteries. Cause it was a really fun, fun one, but it's like, um, it was like six knots that uh, is what it was, was dragging them, which is like a lot of force. Yeah, um, so they had to let go of the rocks. They were just like holding on for dear life. And we're just like, all right, well, guess we're not looking at the monument this afternoon. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy. 1986 is when it was found. So obviously, okay. So we're basically where we're at here so far in the episode is that some people believe the ruins to be naturally occurring, like uh, Dr. Shosh and others argue that it belongs to an ancient civilization that could have been constructed obviously as early, potentially as early as 10,000 BC, which is pretty wild to think. Um, predating the pyramids by a long, long time, unless you talk to certain sort of ancient theorists and things like that, <laughs> right? Um, so, ugh, man, it's crazy. So the site exists at the most western point of Japanese island chain, right? We've already mentioned this, where a civilization did exist. Um, we just don't know a lot about it because whether or not there was like a really established civilization there, there's not a lot of archaeological record. Like there's pottery and there's some hunting, gathering type tools and weapons and things like that. But other than the monument, like this would be the piece that kind of ties it all together. Mm -hmm. So I got a quote here from uh, Dr. Kimura because it's just really interesting. So he's talking about the largest structure that um, extends up 25 meters. So he goes to say, uh, the largest structure looks like a complicated monolithic stepped pyramid that rises from the depth of a, of, <clears throat> excuse me, of about 25 meters, says Dr. Kimura. Um, who presented his latest theories about uh, this site at a scientific conference in Japan. Um, this was in June, I believe, of 2009. Um, so relatively recently, and this is still ongoing. People are still going back to this site. It's mm -hmm. become one of the most renowned dive sites. Like, yeah, it's, uh, it if you're a diver, you kind of have to check it off your list. Yeah, totally. And Dr. Kimura is definitely not alone in his beliefs. So we've only really mentioned two main players so far. Mm -hmm. There's another guy, a writer and researcher. He's, he's quite famous for a few different books. Um, one of his uh, most famous ones is titled uh, Underworld. And he, he writes a lot about myths and legends, but he tries to back it up with some hardcore evidence. This guy's name is Graham Hancock. He's from the UK. And this is what he had to say about the structures at Yonaguni. It was the submerged structures of Japan that first awakened me to this possibility that an underworld in history, unrecognized by archaeologists, could lie concealed and forgotten beneath the sea. And this guy has gone to check out a few different uh, underwater sites in India, others uh, right close by to Yanaguni that are also hotly debated whether they were man-made or naturally formed. So he draws parallels between Yanaguni and the ruins at the uh, in the waters of Lake Ooh, <laughs> Titicaca. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's oh, like an Ace yeah, Ventura we, right there. Chicago. <laughs> uh, and this is uh, off the coast of India. So he thinks this offers further evidence for the existence of a vast underwater Ooh. world containing structures. And this is stretching back into the dimmest chapters of human history as cool. he states. Well, India, yeah, it's not too, too far away. No, and there, and I'll get into some of these other Japanese ones in a sec. And others feel the same way as Hancock and Dr. Kimura. Uh, editor, another researcher, uh, Frank Joseph, he's uh, the editor of uh, Ancient America magazine now, but prior to that, he was a journalist. And he had this to say in 2001, Japanese scientists have documented marks on the stones that indicate that they were hewn not only that, the tools used in the process have been found in the area. And that's true. It's just debated whether or not those tools were actually used for cleaving the stone. Mm -hmm. And Professor Shosh would probably argue that. Um, hmm. An interesting point, though, 
to make um, just, you know, in, in contrast, again, Dr. Shosh would, um, would advocate for this because I saw several references to the fact that a lot of these stones are actually still a part of the living bedrock which means that they mm-hmm. haven't actually been fully quarried. They've just right. been... partially quarried. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Cleaved on either one side, two sides, or three sides. It makes you wonder what's what was potentially a part of this structure that isn't anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, if these stones cleave the way they do and they break off the way they do, and this is a high current area, I, I mean, what know. if what if there was like a statue that was like definitively in the, in the center of the main plaza that's gone now, well, and it was like, okay, this is made, or, man-made. Or even the, the guardian god, right? And how that could have been diminished and eroded over time too. You never know because it, it, it's it's interesting from some angles. It really looks like a god and it looks like it a does. face, a human face. And then you go to the side, the one side, and it looks very much unfinished. Right. Mm-hmm. This uh, this guy, Frank Joseph, goes on to say, um, and this is debated, right? So it's like he goes on to say a small stairway carved into the rocks. Um, this is on the south side. Um, appears to render the theory that this is that th- this is a natural formation implausible. Okay, that's very easily debated because the step formations is the most likely to naturally occur. But mm-hmm. here's the interesting thing about it. Depending on where you're looking on the monument, some of them are perfectly uniform. Mm. Others are not. And, and that's what um, Dr. Shosh referenced too when I was just reading that quote from him. The titanic stone steps that on the southern face have steps ranging from less than half a meter to several meters in height. So that is not useful for a human. <laughs> no, um, but if, if that's the case, maybe they're not steps, like you're walking up the steps, but these are these are platforms, or, just displays, or essentially. Or switchbacks, right? Yep. I don't know. That 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 the, the rest of it isn't there anymore or something, right? Maybe, I don't know. So anyway, yeah, yeah, he goes on again to say, the problem with all of this for Western scientists is that it implies an unknown Eastern culture that had developed a high degree of organization thousands of years before the earliest Western civilizations did. And of course, we don't want to rewrite history. People don't want to rewrite history. No. Geologically, the Yanaguni Pyramid, as he calls it, the pyramid, so he's really going to the uh, full extent here, sank into the ocean at the end of the last ice age around 10,000 years ago. Dr. Kimura thinks it might be a little bit more recent than that. Some Western geologists, he goes on to say, have theorized that if it is man-made, it must have risen from the sea in more ancient times and had been carved then, so at a sea level decrease. So I don't know how, I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, we didn't really come across that with Dr. Kimura's work. He seemed to be more of the mind that an earthquake had potentially sent it sliding down uh, the mountains into the sea potentially 2,000 to 2,500 years ago, or, 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 or 2,000 BC, rather, so mm-hmm. 3,000 years ago. Um, hmm. Anyway, yeah. Hmm. I do want before... I don't know if that fits the timeline. It, it doesn't really, like right? The and, the, and Dr. Shosh is like, I, he can't find the geological evidence to back that up. So it makes more sense that it would have been... Oh, and on, yeah. on top of it, too, Monty Hall and his dive team, they went and searched extensively in the like um, under, underground caverns that are underneath the monument, mm-hmm. just looking for stalactites and stalagmites. Right. Couldn't find any, because that no. would have been evidence of it being above water, right, in, in more recent times. And they could least. date it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But they weren't able to do that. But And to give an example how treacherous this dive area is, though, there was two caves that they could have potentially looked for these uh, stalactites in, and one of them had three divers that were still dead in there. It was essentially a tomb. They had gone in three years ago. Three three years ago, three divers gone. The rule of threes. I don't Indeed. know. Is there something about that? It's Uh-oh. freaky. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Maybe there's some sort of, uh, I don't even know. I don't even want to go there. A curse. The curse of the Yanaguni <laughs> Monument. The curse. Okay. Mm-hmm. We are definitely trying to make a case here, though, and so is obviously Dr. Kimura, that this is potentially 
a piece of the lost civilization of Amu. And yes. one of the main features that to me signifies this is the God Stone. And I'm calling it that. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm like dubbing the guardian it that. god? Not even the guardian god. So there's the standing god rock that stands above water that's separate from the monument. That's another weird geological feature they mentioned in the Monty Hall documentary. And it doesn't look man-made, uh, but it was just what they call the standing god rock because it kind of looks like a face. Hmm. And then, of course, down underwater near the Yanaguni monument, we've got the god stone, the sphinx, right. the sphinx-like face. What if it was like a duo, like a protectorate potentially because here's the thing if the earliest populations of japan they came across on on ice bridges right they they came across uh following their following animals essentially hunter gatherers mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. the ice bridges disappeared and you're now island, islanders yeah and you're stuck there so this the living becomes sedentary becomes more organized so these ancient peoples of these island chains would have latched on to things to revere more so than their nomadic ancestors would have Mm-hmm. And this godstone, I think, represents that. And so does Dr. Professor Kimura. So he, he says, in Okinawan folklore, there are tales of traditional gods and a land of the gods called uh, Nerai Kani, an unknown fairway, faraway land from where, the ha- from where happiness is brought. So uh, Kimura goes on to say that the Yanaguni monument and the godstone may have been built to serve a similar deity. Mm, like a temple. That makes the most sense to me. It reminds me of Crete, you know, like that ancient temple um, island. And yeah, because it's just so ostentatious. And so like it would have just struck awe into anyone that would have seen it, right? So of course. Oh, and not to mention that Dr. Shosh, he actually, he, in his 1999 paper, he actually referred to the fact that at about 10,000 to 8,000 BCE, it would have uh, roughly, the, the island, the site itself would have roughly lined up with the line of Capricorn, which would have made it a very significant astrological site as well. So if they were in tune with the stars and the, and everything, which they probably were, again, would have added even more significance to this particular site. Right. You know what's interesting about that godstone, though, that you bring up? <laughs> this is me diving into sort of like folklore, pop culture, because like we've watched a few monster movies, Japanese monster movies, and the theme of like having um, a god made of stone that comes to life to protect the people is a very common theme yeah. and runs deep for hundreds, if not thousands of years in Japanese culture and all that type of thing. So again, right, kind of lends itself to parallels that we can draw. Potentially. <laughs> it's all conjecture, but you know, it's all good. It really does look like a face though. I mean, it's, you know, like Kamura is the one who said it reminds him of the Sphinx because it sits at a distance away from the monument, similarly to the Sphinx in Egypt, where it watches over um, whatever the city would have been at the time exactly, there. Exactly, yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. the eyes are very symmetrical. They're off by a few inches in terms of the center of the, each eye, the pupil, if you will. Mm-hmm. But could this have been from weathering and, and wear? So the socket isn't the same size exactly on the one side. It looks unfinished is what the divers yeah. described it as. Yeah, exactly. That, and whether or not it's erosion or it simply didn't get constructed fully. But that is an exciting description. Because you kind of mentioned that too. You're like, well, what if it sank before they were finished? You know? Potentially. Yeah, that's a possibility. It also looks like an Easter Island head to me, kind of. It reminds me a little bit of that. Oh, yeah. You know, like kind of that oh, sort yeah. of um, uh, angular formation and... Uh, mm-hmm. It just reminds me a little Could bit of that. Obviously, that. massive stone. So, well, should we flip back over to Shosh for a minute? Sure, Shoshi. Yeah, because <laughs> he remains unconvinced that any of these major features or structures are man-made steps or terraces. He he kind of is of the opinion that they are naturally um, 
Agreeing. He's actually, you know, it's funny, you, you refer to him as a geologist. He's actually a professor of science and mathematics. So geology, I guess, would be under that scope or umbrella. I think he also has that then because they introduced him as a geologist in the Monty Hall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, science and mathematics. Yeah, close enough. Sciences. He's yeah. into science. But anyways, he, he illuminated his ideas further in that paper. And I'll just read a little bit further because he says here, um, on some of his later dives, on some of my later dives, is quote, I spent time scraping the organisms off the rocks in several places so as to gain views of the actual rock faces and also brought up some samples of the rock to the surface. The Yanaguni monument is per- composed predominantly of medium to very fine sandstones and mudstones from the lower Mycene Yayama group. <laughs> yeah, <right>. Yayama. <laughs> so they were deposited about 20 million years ago. And these rocks contain numerous well-defined parallel bedding planes along which the layers easily separate. The rocks of this group are also crisscrossed by numerous sets of parallel and vertical joints and fractures. Yanaguni lies in an earthquake-prone region. Such earthquakes tend to fracture rocks in a regular manner. I've also spent a fair amount of time traveling the length and breadth of Yonaguni Island so as to examine and gain understanding of the local geography and geomorphology of the island. Along the southeast and northeast coasts of Yonaguni and the Yayama group, sandstones are abundantly exposed, and here I could observe them weathering and eroding under current conditions. <clears throat> All right, he goes on to say here, I became convinced that presently at the surface, natural wave and tidal action is responsible for eroding and removing the sandstones in such a way that very regular step-like and terrace-like structures remain. The more I compare the natural but highly regular weathering and erosional features observed on the modern coast of the island with the structural characteristics of the Yonaguni Monument, the more I became convinced that the Yonaguni Monument is primarily the result of natural geologic and geomorphological processes at work on the surface i also found depressions and cavities forming naturally that look exactly like the supposed post holes quote quote um, that some researchers have noticed on the underwater monument hmm. mm. but he goes on to say <laughs> even more here okay. it's not a closed case the question of its genesis artificial versus natural may not be all an all or nothing question we should also consider the possibility that the Yanaguni monument is fundamentally a natural structure that was utilized, enhanced, and modified by humans in ancient times. Very cool. End quote. <laughs> yeah, very, very cool. Oi! That was a long one. Yeah, that was a long one, but yeah. super important because, it, you know, he's, he's not... He's not... It, it, nothing's definitive because even if you see these formations on land nearby, here's my thing. Okay, yeah, you've, you've taken a survey, and I, I shouldn't even have that tone of voice because I'm, I'm digging Dr. Shoshir and his work. He's not poo-pooing anything, which, mm-hmm. I, which I really love in our field, obviously, right? But sandstone and this type of bedding plane rock exists all over the world. You can find this everywhere. Mm-hmm. You can find it right here off Okanagan Lake near where we are. And, uh, and we've seen rock formations kind of like this above ground where we're kind of like we're, we're hiking around and stuff. And there's like there's clear 90 degree angles and like flat planes and stuff. Not once in my entire life have I ever walked past anything like that and thought humans made that. Mm, yeah. Never. And there's 1986. People have been diving for since the 40s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the 80s is still early, but now, okay, it's 2019. People are diving all over the world. No one else has stumbled across anything quite like this monument. How, how is that how is that possible how is that nowhere else on planet earth where sandstone and this type of rock is prevalent we have not found similar conditions that people are like this looks like the onaguni monument this looks man-made to me 
Well, maybe, I find that I think really maybe we weird. need to do more digging. I find that super. We just super came weird. across this one, so who knows what else yeah. is out there? You know, you never know. We should just do an episode on that debated archaeological structures <laughs> throughout the world, <laughs> which I guess is what we're doing right now. So yeah, I guess so. But yeah, I thought it was really interesting, though. It officially remains unrecognized as a significant archaeological site by the Japanese government by anyone else. Kimura's been pushing for that, but uh, it's it has not yet been recognized. Yeah, which is interesting. All right, we are going to, we got a lot more to talk about this, you guys, and some really cool stuff. We're getting into the lost continent of Atlantis, aka uh-huh. uh, the lost civilization of Mu, which is what some people believe the Yanaguni might be linked to. But before we do, we're going to take a quick promo break. Hello, I'm Courtney. And I'm Andreel. And we host Spellcast, a podcast dedicated to all things witchy, occult, and spiritual. Spellcast seeks to bridge the gap between the mundane and the occult by sharing knowledge and welcoming all those who are curious about the worlds of magic, philosophy, art, and higher truth. You can find us on most major platforms, and if you'd like to follow us on Facebook, you can find us at Spellcast Podcast. We have a Facebook page and also a private Facebook group for you to join. We are also on Instagram at Witchy Page, and you can find us on Twitter at SpellcastPod. If you would like to join our online coven, you can always visit us at patreon.com forward slash spellcast. And we are now proud to be a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. If you'd like to see us and our friends that are part of that production company, you can visit us at straightupstrange.com. And remember, there's a little witch in all of us. And spirits live in the mirror. (laughs) All right, and we're back. Yeah, so check out Spellcast. They're pretty funky and cool. They're awesome. And have tons of really cool things to talk about. Definitely. Yeah. Before we get back into the topic of the moment, um, we wanted to make a special thanks out to Matt. Yeah. Our curator of The Strange. That's Um, right. Yeah. He sent us a letter. We just got it along with some awesome stickers. Snail mail up in Canada. Yeah. (laughs) No, he he sent us a really nice letter and a bunch of cool swag. Uh, His his new icon, his bearded, uh, what's the name? It's right behind us here, actually. Anyway, it's Mm -hmm. it's awesome. And uh, he's done a lot of great work with the strange room yep. and uh and it's just been great so thank you man shout out to you definitely and thank you for the letter that was really nice and for those of you listening who haven't checked out the strange room it's our facebook group for our new network straight up strange that's right so it's lots of fun there's tons of cool articles funny memes and you know just like really fun stuff and lots of good conversations going on so definitely and um our blog our network blog is soon to be launching in there as well so there's going to be some really cool like network exclusive content yeah. coming there too there's like 1300 members and growing every day so it's really fun. You guys should check it out. Mm-hmm. Ready to get back into this? Let's do it. Okay, so we're moving into, well, my favorite part of the episode, really, because this is where we get to the juicy stuff. We're talking about <laughs> a couple of different versions of the Lost Continent theory, if you will, or just um, the myths and legends that surround Lost Continent ideas. And one of them was totally brand new to me, and this was the the Lost Civilization of Mu. Um, yeah, a continent thought to be lost, you know, thousands of years ago, somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. And in the heyday of brash archaeology, some, of course, had formed the opinion that something like a moo or something similar to it must have existed in order to explain some of the 
you know, extremely striking similarities between all kinds of different cultures. For example, the Egyptian and Mayan cultures, obviously with the pyramid structures in even mm-hmm. African and Olmec potentially with the heads. People have made the, the connection there where they think it looks distinctly West African in origin. Yeah. How did it get there? Mm-hmm. Transoceanic contact. They weren't thinking about that. Maybe there was a landing launch point in the middle somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah. So exactly. there's a bunch of different versions of this legend. And uh, one comes from this interesting fellow, Augusto Le oh, Pologian. Plongion. <laughs> Augusto. Plong. What a name, eh? Man. I don't know. That would be an easy one to make fun of in uh, elementary school. Poor yep. Augusto, eh? Anyway, he probably <laughs> didn't go to an elementary school like that because he was a 19th century archaeologist traveler who focused uh, much on his work and investigation into Mayan civilization. So a very unique, unique existence. But um, focused on the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. And he tried to translate the Mayan inscriptions that he found there. And according to his reading um, of this particular, this one particular artifact, the the stele, the stele. Mm -hmm. And he he deciphered it to be telling of the destruction of a, a continent known as Mu, which he associated with Atlantis and which he proposed to be somewhere in the Atlantic. So basically his reading soon led him to argue that Mayans had found the cities of Egypt and built the pyramids that both cultures had ancestors in common, essentially. Like there was a middle ground for them to learn all this stuff. Some sort of common ancient past. Which is pretty interesting. And we've talked about transoceanic stuff, Mm -hmm. and we kind of skipped over this little more woo-woo depending on who you're talking to, idea of how that could have happened. But there's other versions too. So another version goes as follows. This is uh, James Churchward, a writer, excuse me, engineer, uh, who continued uh, with the theory of the continent of Mu. But unlike uh, the first fellow, he located Mu in the Pacific Ocean or sorry, that is, is that, did I say that before? Yep. It was in the Pacific? Yeah. Well, because, yeah, Palangion, of course, he right. associated with Atlantis right. and in the Atlantic Gotcha, somewhere. of course. So he located Mu in the Pacific. And then in addition to that, he argued that he knew of the lost continent from an old Buddha, uh, Buddhist manuscript that he deciphered um, with the help of a, a monk that couldn't be found or verified, which is usually the way it goes in these types of stories. But <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a tough thing to verify. A writer though, and the engineer. Day. The fact that he was a writer is kind of like, oh, okay, kind of maybe making up some fantastic well, What kind stuff. of writer, right? Are you like a uh, well, I don't know. war journalist the or are you is, a fiction writer? The thing is all, like both of these dudes were kind of taking the line of the first kind of guy. Okay. So there was another dude named Charles Brassier de Bourbourge. And anyways, he was um, translating the Mayan text, the Codex Troiano. And it's a really foundational text, um, supposedly. I don't know much about it myself. But he is supposedly responsible for uh, some sort of translation error that then led to almost like a domino effect, massive amount of confusion over literally the word Mu, I think it was. I think it was a mis a misnomer and somehow it just got kind of passed down the line right but it, either way like these are some fantastical ideas that these guys are bringing up and if you think about it right you're at that time you know like if you're going into these places and then you see these strange parallels it's not hard to think or dream up something kind of similar to this right i don't I, know i mean no i i definitely think so and like for me, like I just said before there, like we kind of skipped over this idea yeah. and just had had this notion that like 
this, you went with, went with this idea that people just, you know, got blown over in a storm, right? And then exactly. made contact that way. Or, or, or island hopped or something. Yeah, exactly. Or, came through mm-hmm. the nor- a northern passageway, like the St. Brendan route or something, and made your yeah. way down the, the coast of North America. This is, mm-hmm. um, I love this direction, though. It's fun, for it sure. Um, there's another sort of side of this, too. Like, others have thought about um, and hypothesized about a possible legendary land of Lemuria, And this is supposedly another lost land, either in the Indian or possibly the Pacific Oceans. And it's largely discredited now. It's largely believed to have, again, just been like um, sort of a fantastical notion of convenience to a lot of, again, sort of heyday archaeologists, like we already said, like they're more brash in their their thoughts and their ideas. And it kind of gets even weirder with the Limeria version because okay, there's, there's this one thing i came across and this is just in a blog and it's definitely just something that i want to mention out of sheer entertainment value absolutely so there are supposedly um these fantastical limerian seed crystals and uh, sorry if i'm offending any people that are really into crystals or something but apparently these have magical powers and if you own one you have a connection to what is known as the spiritual world of limeria which is now sunk deep into the depths of an ocean somewhere interesting i, I mean I think it's the I think the part about that that's probably fantastical is the the locate where the crystals have come from. Obviously, it's well. I mean, I, where cause, they're cause, supposedly cause I, from. Right, exa- exactly. Right, like that. You know, because but, if you have something in front of you like an amethyst, like I believe in some. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, some, you know. yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm not discounting all no, no, I know crystals. Not. I'm just yeah. saying these ones in particular. Indeed, they gets even better though. Okay, it says here that these crystals are known as master healers, and they're telepathic, so they can carry messages from the lost continent of Lemuria or Mu interchangeably as they're associated, um, okay. which is again right. buried deep beneath the Pacific or possibly the Indian Ocean. And okay, it gets interesting though because for thousands of years, supposedly. Polynesians have handed down stories of a lost continent in the Pacific that was the supposed motherland of mankind. And these legends um, are supposedly forms of ancient knowledge uh, for numerous indigenous tribes of the Philippines, such as the Balan and the Samal of Mindanao. Okay. Yeah. And uh, there are supposedly many sites and many people in the Philippines today um, that will speak of this. And there are these boulders that are thought to be remnants of the lost continent. And again, could be potential portals back to the spiritual world sunken in the depths. Crazy stuff. So that's really fantastical. These telepathic powers and forms of spirituality that obviously exceed many modern forms of spirituality well you know what this is like okay i mean i don't even want to give too much away if we do just i don't think we're even gonna do it for film friday though because you seem pretty ticked off the other day when we watched the abyss oh god yeah but this like reminds me of that a little bit doesn't it really oh well i don't know like a sunken civilization like there's something at the in the abyss that's like i see what you're saying telepathic capabilities and can like (laughs) control water and stuff like that yeah i'm sorry if i'm uh majorly spoiling the abyss but when did that come out like 90 oh it was like 89 or 92 or something like that ed harris is a badass though i love that guy well even he was kind of lame in that well he was a little lame in that movie that wasn't the best but anyways these limerians and the limerian sea crystals again like they have supposedly told of a cataclysmic event and 
Oh, okay. So apparently, sorry, I read that wrong. They, <laughs> they had foreseen some sort of cataclysmic event that these people there in their ancient is. times or whatever. And they programmed these seed crystals with knowledge and traditions before they left earth for a new world. That's an interesting turn of phrase. Yeah. And other people believe that they didn't depart from earth into space, but they actually went deep into the earth and they're still there. And many, um, Philippines, like, you know, like more, um, like island prone to superstition and that type of thing. Um, more of the remote islands of the chain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They 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 kind of see all of these amassing healers, psychics, mediums, and spirits on the islands as part of this lost continent. Right. So for them, it does have some spiritual roots, but again, I feel like it could be fifty fifty of like yeah. just pure bogus. Whatever. I wish I would have been like really into this stuff back when I got to go to Fiji. I would have like asked way more questions. Um, obviously, totally different location. But like we were talking about the Indian Ocean and and being near Australia and places like that. And it's, you know, it's everywhere, essentially. Every single culture has a version of this, mm-hmm. really. But this oh, is really fantastical stuff. Exactly. I honestly, this is one With of my crystals. favorites, though. Like not the crystals, but this next one. Okay. Um, there's another um, connection to... Okay, so this basically connects Maya, Hawaiians, and Egyptians together with this lost continent of Mu. And in another connection to a past episode that we've done for our patrons, it was a Patreon exclusive, um, the Menahune people. Right. Um, this came from the Kahuna Research Group. It says here, the Mu people were thought to have been a very peaceful race, highly evolved in fields of agriculture, astronomy, uh, fishing, navigation, and other fine arts, among other disciplines. They had no kings, no great warlords, no great armies or systems of law. And as such, the conquering Tahitians considered these first people weak and undisciplined, thereby calling them the Menahune or Manahune, um, those of secret or hidden power is kind of how it translates to. Right. But yeah. it also can be a very derogatory term, obviously. Okay. And can mean like it's very diminishing um word to use for someone okay but it goes on here and it's kind of interesting it says here how the main social unit in times of the mu was the ohana so that means family and the elders of the family were the rulers because they were the eldest and considered the wisest and so they are and were and are today sorry called the kupuna and then among these elders there is another very familiar term here the kahuna so ah. ka um, means the, and then huna means secret. And so these are essentially keepers of secrets and knowledge. So very, very unlike cool. Hollywood depictions of like, you know, like a witch doctor or someone that's like, you know, like a big strong man or blah, 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 of like course. that type of thing. Of course. It's, yeah. yeah. Master of a certain discipline essentially is what it means. And a master of knowledge, which is kind of cool. So I like that connection to Mu because, you know, again, we're talking Pacific and Hawaii is like right in the middle of that. So you know. Very true. Yeah. Pretty cool. Well, though, I, hey? I love, yeah, absolutely. Because I, I love that connection because then we have obviously, well, in that episode on Patreon and you guys should definitely go check out our Patreon. Mm-hmm. They have, there's physical sites that the people there today like tie to the men yeah. yeah. and physical stuff. I just, it's so cool. So it's like mm-hmm. maybe one day we will be able to draw some sort of a connection to it potentially. And I'm not advocating for an entirely lost continent. I'm not like, because when you look at some of the pictures, like if you, if you type in lost continent, continent on just Google and look at images Mm -hmm. and you look at the versions of Mu, Lumeria, other stuff going on, 
that are, you know, depicted in science fiction and whatever, even going further back, they're massive. Like they're continents that are, they're bigger than any of the continents that we have today, right? So when we're talking about Pangea Pangea breaking up, one of these would have been left over. But I'm, I'm saying maybe, I'm kind of skipping ahead to theories a little bit here, but just smaller islands, other things that maybe were around and lost, like not not an entire continent, but maybe might have felt that way for people doing transoceanic voyages back in the day. Well, even, yeah, like a smaller island, like even how Hawaii's been formed, right? Essentially, it's along the fault line. And as as it goes along, like those islands will eventually disappear back underneath the sea. Yeah. And uh, when we're talking about the case of uh, Yanaguni in particular, right? We're not talking about continent, but we're talking about um, a very interesting site that did succumb to tectonic forces, presumably, um, considering the nature of its construction, all these other evidentiary points. Right. But yeah, no, exactly. Like, I feel like we're, we're going fantastical with these because we want to mention the fantastic. We like, we love this stuff. But, well, and, and, you know, it's not like we yeah. are specifically believing No, it and I'm glad you, you said Yanaguni because, like, let's get mm-hmm. back to that, Andrew. Like, bang, my, bang myself in the head here to, like, come back to that because we're talking about a lot of different stuff here. Yeah. But, I mean, the cool thing about where Yanaguni is located is, is that even if this was a post, like an era after... A, civil, a, a lost civilization, you know, was gone. Mm-hmm. Those islanders there may have attempted to quarry something to, in an, like an attempt to revere what was once there. You know what I mean? Like they, exactly. the, the gods of the sea, the, yeah. the people who are way more advanced than them, mm-hmm. the people who could come on ships and they just had simple, simple stuff for fishing and whatever, like 14,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's crazy to think. Anyway, but we've 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 come across a lot of ideas like this in past episodes, more you know, in a, in a few different ways. And like we talked about a minute ago, like there's a bunch of different versions. Some tell of a lost continent between India and Madagascar. Some talk about it being located in the Atlantic, others in the Pacific. I mean, how plausible is it? I mean, we know that sea levels rose significantly since the last ice age and that, you know, the area in question, or at least one of them that they're dealing with for this, obviously for this episode, is prone to massive tectonic activity and exists right in the Pacific Ring of Fire. However, that isn't to say that there aren't those that would definitely oppose the idea of a lost continent uh, disappearing. Obviously. Well, within this time frame too, right? Right, right. So, yeah, like modern geological knowledge kind of rules out this idea because, well, because of the sheer size is one idea. And then also the theory of plate tectonics is kind of comes into play here too, which is interesting because, okay, so this basically argues that the Earth's crust versus the ocean crust um, have different densities. And essentially, the Earth's crust, or sorry, the continental crust, I should say, Earth's crust versus ocean's crust. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my God. Sorry, I'm misspeaking here. Pizza crust. Mm, I go for some pizza. Yeah, but anyways, um, yeah, so the, the crust, okay, so in general, the continental consists of lighter seal rocks and aluminum silicates, that type of thing. And it essentially floats on heavier SEMA ocean, or sorry, SEMA rocks. So magnesium silicates, and that's what the oceanic crust is made up of. So this isn't to say that we haven't like we don't see the even like the west coast of Canada, right? You see evidence of the collision of an oceanic plate carrying a bit of continental um, 
into basically forming accreted terrains, which yeah. makes up the Rocky Mountains and all that kind of, of stuff. Of course, yeah. So there is interplay there. For sure. But in general, they say that continents kind of float on icebergs, like like icebergs, sorry, on water. And it can't essentially just sink into the ocean. But I'm going to counter that too. Oh, sorry. Do you want to say something? No, no, go, no, no. Keep going. Keep I going. could say like, you know, you could argue the fact that, well, what if one continent simply is a lot um, lower. And so when you get massive sea level rise, it would disappear potentially. You know what I mean? Like just basic flooding. I don't know. But then we'd, of course we'd find it under the yeah, water very easily. Yeah, you think it would be easy to It'd find. be there. There'd be mm-hmm. just giant mountainscape between the... Yeah. It, between the... Yeah. The I main mean. problem is the time frames too. It's just really just too short to sink or destroy a continent um, to the point where we have no evidence to... Like in modern times. Well... It's, it's tough. Unless... You're buying into <laughs> the extent to of the um, the Great Flood story, essentially. What do you mean? Well, I mean, we talked about, we had a three-part series on that, obviously. And I think in the end, we kind of got down to like, there was a lot of real geologic evidence for it. Didn't quite match up to the, the maybe over-embellishment of a lot of the legends, obviously. Mm-hmm. But if it wasn't over-embellishment... And there wasn't anything left. And it was more violent than just like a slow sea level rise. You know what I mean? And it's like other forces at work type yeah. of thing. Hmm. Okay. If it's not the size of a real continent, right? Con- but it feels like a continent to a person, right? Because maybe it's a massive floodplain or something. You know what I right. mean? So that, you know. Something we're the talking size about, of like half a Greenland about- or something. And it, exactly. In ancient times, too, they had a lot of tendencies to exaggerate as well. And, of course. And of course, we do in modern times as well. It could have been no. like literally the size of Hawaii chain. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. And it's perhaps. out there. Mm-hmm. Anyway. A world, exactly. Yeah. And like even what we say right here, like the word continent might be a misnomer. Um, it, like, you know, don't take it as literally as an entire continent the size of North America or something that could fill the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean by any means. Right. But what if it was just a ma- land mass, um, a massive island, like we were saying already, something that just could have been sunk underwater by tectonic activity? I Damn. Know. That's, that's kind of, and that's where we're trying to tie it back to Yanaguni, right? So the fact that that it is a 40,000 meter squared area but that's not impossible to sink underwater right like of course uh, in my my humble humble opinion that is not expertise at all no neither (laughs) of us are we're we're not uh i suppose we could bring dana back on and have a geologist perspective that'd be nice but um no we're but going back to dr shosh and uh, dr kimura i mean like Shosh said, he like there was no real evidence above water of a cert- of tectonic activity that would have led to a more modern like slip into the ocean. So we are, in a way, he was like talking about it being like okay, it, this theory didn't happen like in regards to Kimura. But at the same time, it's like that also kind of affirms the idea that it's really it's been in underwater for much longer. Which means if it did. If it was modified by man, it had to have been way... It couldn't have been just 5,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago. It was it was definitively beyond 10,000 BC, essentially. Because that was what the last time it was above water, correct? Mm, well, it, would, it was theorized to be the age of 10,000 years, but when it actually sunk is kind of, I would think, debated. Right. Like they, just, they can't find evidence to back up Kimura's th- idea that it was maybe above ground 
a little bit more recently, but modified by much more ancient peoples based on how it looks, essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, so I'm, I did a little bit of digging around, um, I suppose that's pun intended, for um, some information <laughs> on the ancient, um, the ancient Japanese, essentially. So the, the, okay. the most ancient peoples of Japan were the uh, Yamon peoples. So Paleolithic age, essentially beginning, ten, you know, 100,000 years up to around 30,000 B.C., the earliest sort of Stone Age implements being used around this time. But the Yamon period in Japan and across the Japanese um, archipelago, I suck at pronouncing that every single time. Archipelago. Every single time. It's a tongue twister for me. Oh, my God. I just want to say Lego every time I look at it. It's like, anyway. Um, they They made some of the very earliest pottery with very distinct markings, very, very intricate weaving, and we mentioned this earlier on with people crossing over on these ice bridges and becoming islanders very quickly. I mean, in terms of mm-hmm. the, you know, geologic history very, very quickly yeah. and having to adapt and becoming more sedentary. And they would have latched on to things that were very, you know, extraordinary to them coming from the sea. Yeah. And, 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 and to see a very human like face in the Yanaguni monument, not like a, not like a animal deity or anything like that, like a very human like face to me is kind of, it's just strange. It, mm-hmm. it, it, it's very, it reminds me of like an Olmec head or an Easter Island head or something like that. That's a guardian broken, or something. A guardian, totally mm-hmm. a guardian. And maybe it was these people. It could, uh, the, you know, we only see them now and have their very, very few number of artifacts overall because it's all the same stuff. Shards of pottery, some very basic tools and implements. But would they have been capable of this? Are, mm-hmm. You know, it, or is it just more of it lost? Possibly. Possibly. Anyway, we did want to go through a few more of the really like profound moments of the Monte Monty Hall dive mysteries documentary because it was just super, super fun. It was really cool. And they did a really thorough job. Yeah, I thought so too. He has a tendency to do that actually. We've watched a lot more of his dive mystery shows now yeah. since then and it's really neat. That's what inspired us to watch The Abyss. Definitely. And The Abyss was just poop. I'm sorry, but it was, it was just so frustrating. It was all yeah. over the map, but we're not going to do that right now. <laughs> yeah. Money yeah. Hall. Yeah. All right. So he he did, I mean, not he, they didn't just do the token one dive like the Monster Quest series the does. The 15-minute <laughs> walk in the park. 15-minute walk in the park. We didn't see Bigfoot camp here. Okay. <laughs> it was an owl, Joe Nickel. Okay, sweet. <laughs> no, they did three or four dives um, at Yanaguni and went to vari- you know, various points around the structure, 40,000 mm-hmm. uh, square meters, massive. And yep. then, of course, the location with the God Stone, as I've dubbed it personally, mm-hmm. um, is, a, is, a, is a distance away, watching over the monument, if you will. Yeah. But some of the most profound moments to me were like, I mean, these guys are seasoned divers. They've dived all over the world. They've dived wrecks. They've dived um, ancient other ancient structures that have been found and verified off the coast of Egypt and different places treacherous places and they went down and their reaction i know it's for a documentary but it wasn't so extravagant that it looked made up it was like they were they they had never seen anything like it before and it was just to them it was distinctly man-made that's the exact phrase that they said yeah yeah and it is when when we saw those first like you know it looming up out of the depths and it's basically just really flat and really barren and not a lot going on, not a lot of um, these like right angle cleave marks like, uh, you know, Shosh was advocating for at other parts of uh, the islands and the coastline, which I'm not right. discounting because we saw it. We no, saw we it on saw the documentary. It. Of course, yeah. But it's very distinct with this particular feature and it's very awe inspiring for sure. It's so cool. 
Monty Hall, his his personal quote, like everyone had different things to say, but he he called it a magical kingdom is what it felt like to him. Undeniably man-made was the exact yeah. quote. Mm-hmm. And even if the monument was naturally formed, there's there's no doubt, like we know this already, it would have been a significant site. I mean, people mm-hmm. are still drawn to it today. We're looking at it today and we're awestruck by it. And if ancient peoples would have come across it, they definitely would have tried to modify it. And like, this might sound like kind of a weird comparison, but for those of you who have seen um, The Life of Brian, for some reason it reminds me a little bit of like the town square where Brian is like standing up there doing his little speech pretending to be, you know, preaching whatever he's preaching to get away from the Romans. Who reminds where- you of that? The, 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 the Yanaguni monument, oh. because it, it essentially reminds me of, it reminds me of a town plaza, hands down. So these massive steps that clearly are not for people to casually walk up from one lower terrace to the upper terrace, they look like display platforms. They look like platforms where they would have either had just, you know what I mean? Like they, they're like the same ones they have made out of wood in Life of Brian, where guys are just standing on them, yelling out whatever. <laughs> Like, you know very what I mean? True. It's like, yeah. it, it seems very much like a... To give a speech or to, yeah, exactly, to display royalty, some sort of elevated yeah. way of living. Or there maybe would have been plants on it, right? Like hanging gardens of Babylon type stuff, stuff. Or yeah, or statues, like gargoyle type mm. something that's long gone now. Even when we looked at the um, those LIDAR maps of Mosquita and things like that, when you look at the remnants of ancient Mayan and, and other Mesoamerican peoples and South American civilizations, like they used the natural landscape to their advantages. Yeah. Right? Like you, like those mound pyramids and those types of things, like they, you use what's around you and you enhance it. You don't, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's the exact opposite mentality we have today with the construction, <laughs> yeah. but you know, like, well, maybe not in some regards, like if you're, you know, whatever, but you know, yeah, you know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. saying. Sorry. I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. I've been talking all day. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm saying. Uh, my throat hurts from talking. <laughs> And maybe from drinking the West Side water because it was unfiltered, and I'm not Ooh. sure about that. Are we on a water advisory? I think we might be. We were, mm. but mm. I there were a few other um, notable parts, uh, and the turtle was one of them. They didn't focus on it too too much, but they they go on to describe wide terraces and then even rock formation that seems to be partially finished, very similar to the Godstone, and and or maybe eroded away. That seems to be a, a depiction of a sea turtle. Oh. Remember that. And it does look like that. And I would know because I won a hmm. sandcastle building contest once where I did an outline of a sea turtle. So there's Good that. I'm an expert. Though. Yeah, I'm an expert you on the sea expert. turtle formation. <laughs> so, um, and did you get hit on the head with a sea turtle one time? I, I yeah, I accidentally headbutted a sea turtle. Like I, I swam up and it was above me in uh, Hanama Bay, the <laughs> nature preserve in Hawaii. And it, I bonked it and it really hurt. And then it swam away and it seemed to not even notice. So it was all good. But Mm -hmm. (laughs) anyway, um, there are some other prominent underwater sites in Japan that I think honestly deserve their own episode because this could just keep going on all day. But I wanted to mention it because Graham Hancock, uh, the guy we mentioned earlier, the writer and researcher, who's very, very adamant that this is man-made, Yanaguni, he's dived these sites and written extensively about them. And one of the more notable ones is the only one I'm going to bring up here, the labyrinths, as he calls them, of Kurama. This is uh, also on the western side. I'm not sure the exact location, but we'll we'll try to post that on the um, Facebook forum for you guys to check out. It's located at some similar depths to Yanaguni, so around mm-hmm. 27 and 33 meters at their d- lowest points. Okay. And yeah, it hasn't yet been determined whether these are natural phenomena or structures that were, you know, created by some sort of ancient man. But essentially it looks like... Okay, so this is what it is. There's basically... 
As Hancock describes it, man-made circular holes found on the summit of a small sea mount between 5 and 20 meters uh, underwater off the coast of Aguni. So it's basically another um, terrace flat-like platform with very distinct man-made looking holes, similar to the post holes at Yonaguni. Hmm. There's also um, a section where he thinks it, it seems to be a grave site where there seems to be like open shafts, like the, these holes where they get larger and larger al- along the way, and they go pretty deep. So it seems strange that they would have just been, like it would have been a similar um, uh, similar thing that happened with those two parallel pillars standing at Yonaguni where it just got worn out in between and it, they're left perfectly parallel. Mm-hmm. This seems almost a little bit more distinct and maybe they were burial shafts at one point above ground. Mm-hmm. I did see a few other pictures as well where there's boulders that look very distinctly organized in some sort of a pathway. Um, yeah. And that's where the labyrinth uh, description there comes from leading up to this site. It's super okay. weird. We'll definitely post some photos of that as well. But, I mean, it just goes to show how much there is left to discover underwater. These were even only discovered relatively <clears throat> recently. And Yanaguni was mm. 1986. Yeah, really That recent. was only five years before I was born. That's crazy It sauce. is incredible. It, there's so many mysteries of the deep. And, like, it was interesting when we watched another one of Monty Hall's documentaries because he was going to this one site they called, what was it called? Just the hole or, like, the blue hole. And yeah, it was basically, hole. I didn't realize this, but it's very, very quick when, um, toxicity can set in and they were describing how literally it was a difference of a 20 meters, right? So you go from 40 meters down to what they called the arch. So the arch is what's luring people to their desks because they think that they can swim through this thing, but it's too deep it's much and you start to appears, yeah. lose your senses and you start to kind of go numb and then you essentially just kind of give up and you'll just float to the bottom and die instantly pretty much like it's kind of crazy and you start to lose your oxygen a lot faster even at that 20 meter difference and then it goes what down to 100 meters altogether 100 meters yeah in that particular location that was very um like eye-opening for me because like i didn't realize that it was like that critical uh, that fast you know what i mean and yeah i would highly recommend that series to anyone that's interested this is on youtube yeah totally free what was on that YouTube. One called? it was just called the blue hole the blue hole just mm-hmm. off uh, off the coast of egypt somewhere yeah the um, curse of the blue hole yeah. i think it was called it was a really interesting story though mm-hmm. very intriguing but yeah no it's it's kind of insane to think that there's so much left to explore yeah, in that regard and, absolutely and just the dangers involved like for me i'm thinking instantly i'm like come on let's just get a drone down there <laughs> let's get a drone come on just do it don't don't risk your lives like come on i mean yonaguni is relatively safe well but what about even when they were searching for the stalactites and stuff like they, that's a little more intense yeah going in they should have used a drone anyways yeah they're adventures that's I suppose my conclusion. it's expensive to use a drone. Drones for everything. That's your conclusion. Amber approves. And what is your? I mean, what it. is your actual? Let's just get to that. I mean, we're there. What? what what's? Uh, what are your final thoughts and theories on this? What do you think the monument is? I've been pretty consistent is? all throughout this, and I do kind of agree. I'm kind of towing the line between the two hard lines between the natural and the man-made. I I honestly think that a lot of this, like we've already said, was naturally occurring and then was just modified. I think that's the most logical explanation until we find further evidence suggesting otherwise. I'm I'm sticking to that. The question is why? If that's, well, if that's I think it has believe. religious significance. I right. think it had spiritual significance and probably the elite uh, priest, like, you know, not a priest, but you know what I mean? Like some sort of very similar to Crete, right? How right. it was used as a temple. Temple, sacred. Yeah. Sacred. To- Capital S. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I, I would tend to agree with that. 
for the most part. I mean, yeah, I'm on board with that. The thing to me that's the most fascinating about the Yanaguni Monument is, I've said this earlier in the episode, one, there's nothing like it anywhere else, despite the prevalence of the same type of rock in other locations. Of course, the tectonic activity isn't exactly the same. The conditions aren't exactly the same. But I mean, that it just looks so, so freaking man-made. The other part that's interesting is if it is partially modified, if it's a natural formation entirely, and then or, or natural formation that was then modified, this is the tiniest little island. This is a 40,000 square meter mat. Like this is something you would build in a city with hundreds of thousands of people. And like potentially, right? Like in the, on the outskirts, and this is your central plaza. And this island, what do they say? Like you can go around the entire island in like 30 minutes or something. I think, yeah, it was, it was like something 30 to 40. It was something. like, yeah, it's like so tiny. In a car. So if ancient peoples did modify this for religious purposes and went to that extent, what were they revering? Is my question, and that's I where we draw these connections here. to a potential lost continent. That's where oh, these crazy. Exactly. That's where these crazy ideas. You can come look up, right? to the stars, or you can look to the depths of the sea. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was uh, both would have been equally powerful for these people. The effects of the ocean, the powerful force of the ocean on their livelihood, right? Because they, that's exactly once they settled, exactly like you said before, they stopped. Um, they stopped being like foragers, hunter gatherers type things. And they, well, obviously they're hunting They still and gathering, did, but I mean, yeah. they're they fishing, had, right? Yeah. They, they're fishing. They, they have the sea. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Do you buy into any of this lost continent stuff at all? I don't argue against ancient places that no longer exist. You know what I mean? Yeah, Whether or not yeah. they're more figurative and mythical than real. Like, you know what I mean? Like I still, I like thinking that it's, <laughs> I want to have the you, cake and eat it too. Oh man, you're the worst. What? Just that one. No, I want I'm everyone. The worst. Everyone wants their cake and to eat it too. Who else would talk about this stuff with you? <laughs> no, that's true. You're the best. You're the best. I take it back. Um, yeah, I'm vibing with the same thing too. I think there may have been a few island chains that were a lot smaller than a continent that are long, long gone, and that we may cross them. You know, going. You know, subs have seen mm-hmm. them, and if they just look like mounds, or they're just like underwater mounds. There's nothing left. Yeah, or there's whatever left there. Sea there's level rise. Getting back to that too, right? right? Tectonic stuff covered activity, in silt. All this stuff. It's all factors. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You mean? You mean oh, and even the fact that what if it was a volcanic eruption that basically exploded an island and like you know very similar to oh my gosh what's that? Hey. What's that uh, really classic Greek example? Um, Vesuvius. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. That, mm-hmm. We never even talked about that. I mean, well, yeah. atolls. Atolls look, you know, like they are like sunken cities. They it, pretty much are. Yeah. And of course, people just embellish. That's what we talked about, especially in, you know, look at look at Herodotus. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just like, Herodotus. I wish you guys could see End my face story. right now. I'm just giving Amber like Finn. this, like <laughs> this dead stare when I say Herodotus. I'm like, Herodotus. I love that guy. No, good old Herodotus. He's great. All right. Well, we want to know what you guys think about all this Definitely stuff because we've had more than an ample time to talk about it. So let's get on the forum. Let's talk about it. Let's, yeah. Let's get on there. Send us emails we, too. We like getting emails from you guys. Actually, yeah, we really do. Into the portal mailbox at gmail.com. Like mm-hmm. follow us. Come follow us on our social media if you don't already at Into the Portal Podcast on uh, Instagram, Into the Portal One on Twitter. And definitely check out straightupstrange.com. Mm-hmm. We're gonna have some new contest stuff coming too, so um, sometime soon. And we should probably just say it on here too. But a really cool show um, that you guys heard a promo for in this episode, Spellcast. They have uh, an event coming up. Yeah, Spellcast. So I mean, um, I'm sorry, not Spellcast. That's the name of the show. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, it's yeah, Spellcon. Uh, Spellcon. <laughs> uh, so focused on all things occult, witchcraft, all kinds of really cool stuff. And we're gonna post the link for that on our Straight Up Strange website. So make sure you guys stay tuned yeah. for that. 
that if you're in the, oh my, great, my goodness, I'm trying to remember exactly where they are located and I can't off the top of my head, but we'll let you guys know East where Coast, it's at. And if you are in the area, you should definitely check it out. It's going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. This was kind of a weird one. I, I don't know even know what I category like this, this falls into for ITP. <laughs> but anyway, as usual, um, thank you so much for listening uh, to Into the Portal. Your gateway to the bazaar. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.